Matthew 25. I want to speak to you on the subject of the second coming of Jesus Christ. I imagine for some people it's been a long time since you've heard a message on the second coming of Christ. And of course, there's some churches that major on the second coming of Christ and forget to talk about just plain what it means to grow and to develop. Uh, can you hear me all right in the back? Is it coming through on the microphone? Okay. Very good. Matthew, the 25th chapter. I want to read verses 1 through 13. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps, and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. But he, said, he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Many applications have been made to this portion of Scripture. I've heard some people try to make it walk on all four legs. And one thing I, thing I learned in the class hermeneutics is never try to make a parable walk on all four legs. Now by that I simply mean when uh, an illustration is given, such as this with the ten virgins... Uh, you're not going to make everything come out to every minute degree. For example, when Jesus would be talking about hell and he said it's a furnace of fire, some people would try to go to the extent of talking about the door on the furnace and the flue on the furnace and all the rest of it, run it out to extremes, and that's not necessary, but the truth is here. Basically, he's talking about awaiting the second coming of Jesus Christ. There are going to be a lot of people waiting who are dead who do not have oil in their lamps. Now it's an interesting thing that when the Holy Spirit was being given, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was being given to those in Samaria. You remember that Philip went to Samaria and they had a great revival and people had accepted Jesus and were baptized in the name of Jesus. They had become Christians. That then the disciples, Peter and some of the other disciples, went down and laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And there was one man there who had been a magician who said, let me buy this power from you. He saw something happening there that was so revolutionary that he knew he could make money if he had that. He said, let me buy that power from you. He saw when the Holy Spirit came on them, it was something worthwhile. And then we see here that they wanted to go back and buy some oil. Basically what he's talking about here is the illustration that I gave during my series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage of how in that part of the country... When the bridegroom and his friends would come to the bride's house, she would, he would come about midnight. They'd have a big party and just have a good time, and the fellows would together. And at about midnight, they'd come walking down the street with torches, 
and the women would be watching at the windows and finally when they'd see all these men coming, they'd cry out aloud outside the house, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And they'd go around and light up everything they possibly could light up. And the bridegroom would come and take the bride and walk down the street with her and everybody would cheer, will, wish them well and they would go to the bridegroom's home and there's where the wedding would take place. And that's what he's talking about here. At about midnight, the bridegroom came. And what he's trying to tell you is there is a, the right way and the wrong way to wait for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And what you and I believe about the first and second coming of Jesus Christ will determine our actions and it'll set priorities in our life. I say that because there are what I would call two tests to determine the spiritual worth of a man or the spiritual worth of a church. And they're very important to analyze when you go into a church. That's why, as I was telling you a couple of weeks ago, when this brother from Elam Bible College up in New York came through and had stated that he'd gone some 14,000 miles traveling in from church to church, hundreds of churches, and said that they had only found one or two where they'd even consider making it their church home because they were trying to find a church where they felt the presence and the love of Jesus Christ manifest within that body. And then went on to say that they'd gone out after the service in the Lake Mary area trying to find a home because this is where they believe God wants them to make their home church. They were trying to sense the spirit when they'd go into the different churches. And on the Sunday night, he had gone to another church and told the pastor afterwards, he said, God spoke to my spirit during the service and said, these people follow me with their lips, but their hearts are far off from me. Well, that's basically what I'm talking about. There's a vast difference because there are what you would call, first of all, there is, first of all, the test of orthodoxy. Now, when we talk about orthodoxy, it means doctrinally straight. Now, you can take my word for it. My wife and I literally traveled thousands and thousands of miles when we were in Bible college and later when we were in evangelism. And I imagine we visited, multiplied hundreds of churches throughout the United States and Canada in concert work and in evangelistic work in youth work. And in many of those churches, we got into churches that were just as straight as an arrow concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, His uh, resurrection and His ascension. Just as orthodox and straight as you could possibly be. But remember something, Satan himself is orthodox. What does James tell us? He said that James, I mean, James says that, that the Satan believes that Jesus is the Son of God and he even trembles in fear. You know what he says? He's orthodox. He knows that Jesus is the very Son of God. He knows that he was virgin born. He knows that he lived a perfect life. He knows that he died a substitutionary death. He knows that he, knows that he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and he trembles with fear. He's orthodox. There are many churches today that are orthodox and dead as a doornail. The pastor will get up and preach the love of God. And brethren, you must understand that Jesus died for our sins. And in the meantime, everybody's falling asleep in the church. It's possible to teach the truth and still be dead. They'll recite the creed. They'll recite the Lord's Prayer. But during the week, they'll go out of that service and live like heathen. There's no change in their life whatsoever. They hear truth. 
they receive truth constantly and they go out and as long as you don't try to apply it to them, they'll keep on coming to that church. If they want to raise money, they'll have a charity dance, they'll have a bingo game, they'll have a cake sale, they'll have whatever, rummage sale, a bingo game, something to raise money. In fact, I know of the first pastor I worked with out in Denver, Colorado, when he first went to that little old church, when we were there, it was 2,300 members, but it was a church uh, smaller than this one. And after he preached a few weeks, they asked him to come to the church and preach because another preacher wouldn't come. After a few weeks, some folks got saved, and a few more weeks, some more got saved. And during the week, he was down at the church, and he saw them hauling stuff out of the basement. And he had never really noticed what was in the closets down in the basement. And they were hauling out the roulette table and the, the uh, blackjack table and everything, hauling them all up out of the basement. And before long, after a few more months, they even canceled their monthly dance down at the union hall. And before long, some of the men started getting rid of all the whiskey and beer and wine in their houses. You see, that church had been having the messages preached, but there was no life. And he came and preached, you must be born again and get ready for the second coming. And these churches will raise a lot of money with bingo and raffles and all the rest of, you know, raise money for our poor Lord who really needs it. And they can be as orthodox and as straight as a bullet. They know all about the first coming of Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the test of orthodoxy, and you'll find many churches like that today. The second one is the test of spirituality. There's a vast difference between the two. And that will be tested basically by what you believe about the second coming of Jesus Christ, I believe. Not just what you know about the first coming, but what you believe about the second coming. Remember during the Second World War, some of you will remember, some of us will remember, during the Second World War, and some of you young people in your history class, uh, there was a general by the name of General MacArthur who fought the, in the Second World War on Corregidor, an island in the Pacific. And he was defeated and driven off of the island. And as he was walking out into the water, and he was about knee-deep, they say that he turned around and he raised his hand and pointed it back at the island, at the, the jungle, and he said, I will return. Leaving in defeat, he turned and said, I will return. And it wasn't but a few months later, the United States, in a miraculous way, was able to build up their forces and to return to that Pacific island, and they conquered it and all the rest of it, and went on and had a victorious battle there and finally won the war. And when I remembered that particular picture, I, it reminded me of another picture that took place in an upper room about the time, this time of the year, when we're talking about Palm Sunday. You'll remember in the Gospels, the scripture says that Jesus had them go and get a colt. He said, if anybody asks you why you need it, just tell them the Lord needs it and they'll let you have it. And he rode into the city of Jerusalem and they put down palm branches before him. And Some of the men came up and said, stop them from praising you. Stop them from yelling. Stop them from doing all this hollering here. And he said, if they shut up, the rocks will start crying out and praising me. And then he went into an upper room. There was an upper chamber already prepared for him. And as they were sitting around that table, it seemed like a time of defeat. In John the 14th, 13th, and 14th chapter, he's talking about the fact that he said, one of you are going to betray me. One of you are going to deny me. And it looked as though his campaign was failing completely and his little army was frustrated and discouraged. And, and their hopes to reign and rule, you know, all the time, the disciples kept saying, Lord, when are you going to set up your kingdom? Can I sit, uh, the mother of the two sons of Zebedee came and says, can my son sit on each side of your throne? See, they're always thinking of an earthly kingdom, an earthly kingdom. Jesus said, my earth, my kingdom is not of this earth. And now he was talking about going away. 
I'm going to go away from you. And he was talking about dying on the cross. And they just couldn't understand all this language. They were frustrated. But in the midst of it, he said, I am going to come again. Now, their minds didn't conceive it, but they couldn't grasp it right then. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will what? I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, you can say what you want to, but I believe with all my heart that this is the militant rally cry of the church. Not that Jesus Christ came the first time, but that he's coming again. And I believe that there's not enough teaching on that amongst Christians today to make them to realize that it isn't the case that we're just going to walk the rest of this life and fall over in a grave, but at any moment we must recognize that Jesus can come again. Do you know that tonight? That's what the Word says. If you and I really understand that truth, it'll begin to give purpose to our service. Every day when we get up, we'll think to ourselves, is this the last day? If it is, I must give myself as I've never given myself before to the Lord's work. For those that are going through trials and tribulations to realize that one of two things is going to happen. Either I, Jesus is going to redeem me from this thing and carry me out of this thing and carry me through it. Or I'm going to watch, see the upper taker today. You know, too many Christians are looking for the undertaker. Not, of them are, not enough of them are looking for the upper taker. Jesus is the upper taker. And my father-in-law used to always say, well, I, I'm trusting that the upper taker gets me before the undertaker gets me. But either way, he says, the upper taker is going to get me. Because absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he knew that Jesus could come at any moment. That's why my daddy-in-law lived the life that he did live. Not that he did come once, but that he's coming again. I was amazed when I studied the Word and began to search this thing to find out that there are 22 prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ for every prophecy, every one prophecy of his first coming. Think of it. 22 times more prophecies concerning his second coming than his first coming. 322 times plus the whole book of Revelation in the New Testament. Talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's why the angels said there to the disciples, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which you see taken up from you, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. John in the book of Revelation says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And Jesus in Revelation, the 22nd chapter, said, Surely I come quickly. That's the hope of the church, that Jesus can come at any moment. And, and you know, he cannot lie. So many times when I'm ministering to someone to give them an assurance of their salvation, I say, did Jesus say that if you would repent of your sins and confess Him as your Savior, that He'd forgive you? Yes. Well, can He lie? No. If He lies, then He sins, and He can't judge us for our sins, can He? But the Word says He cannot lie. Let every man be a liar, but let God be true. Isn't that, all, isn't that what the Word says? Yes. Well, then if He isn't lying, and He said you've confessed your sins, He'd forgive you, has He forgiven you? Yes. How do you know it? Well, I feel better. Well, that isn't why you should know it, though. How do you really know it? Well, because he said so. Oh, that's different, isn't it? Now you're not going by feelings. You're going by what? Faith in the Word. Makes a big difference. You know, we used to kid each other when we were in Bible college. There were some Armenians and some Calvinists in school. And in the dormitories, that would go on month ad infinitum, month after month, whether you're saved once and for all or saved once and then over and over and over again. 
And we used to kids, when they get up in the morning, we'd say, hey, are you saved this morning? You know? But when we're founded and grounded on the Word of God that He gave us salvation and not probation, we know that upon the authority of His Word, if we've repented of our sins and received Him as Lord, we have eternal life. And we know that God cannot lie. He said He's coming again. He has to come again to justify Calvary. He has to come again to vindicate His death and to verify His Word. It's impossible for Jesus not to come. He is coming again. Praise God when He comes the next time. He's not going to come in humiliation. He's going to come in glory. He's not going to come in hopelessness. He's going to, helplessness. He's going to come as King of kings and Lord of lords. And He's not going to come to be judged. He's going to come to be the judge. And the Word says He's going to judge with a rod of iron. Glory to God. I want you to turn with me to Revelation, the 19th chapter. Genesis, Exodus, Revelation. <laughs> Revelation, the 19th chapter, verses 11 through 16. <clears throat> John, the beloved on the Isle of Patmos speaking. Revelation 19, verse 11 through verse 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness doth he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. Is that what it says? Oh, the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed Him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who's that? When the saints come marching in, isn't it? Huh? Glory to God. Verse 15, And out of His mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it, that with it He should smite the nations. And He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And He hath on His vesture and on His thigh a name written, the Lamb slain. Is that what it says? What's His name? King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is coming again, the Word tells us, and when He comes back again, He will be Lord of lords and King of kings. He came the first time to be slain as a sacrifice for your sins and mine. And he says, now as I go away, if you'll trust me as, my, as your Lord and Savior, I will not have to be your judge. I'll be your Lord and you'll be my children. But if you don't receive me, I'll become your judge and I'll rule with a rod of iron and with righteousness. And to the extent that you and I believe this, it's going to determine, it, determine our zeal and our spirituality and our expectancy and our hope. Show me an expectant Christian, and I'll show you a Christian on fire for Jesus Christ. Show me someone that says, My Lord delayeth his coming, and I'll show you someone going out and defiling their garments in the things of the world. First of all, I want you to know it's an exhilarating hope. Titus, the second chapter, verse 13. Listen to what Titus said. Looking for that blessed hope, that means happy hope, Titus 2, 13. 
looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. When we realize that Jesus can come at any moment, it should create within us an attitude of exhilaration, an attitude of joy and peace. And someone says, well, Brother Webb, how can you have joy and peace with all this mess that we see around us today? Listen now. I can have joy and peace when I see wars, when I see immorality on the increase, when I see violence on the increase, when I see godless philosophies m multiplying uh, so rapidly in the world. I can have joy and peace. When I see, sci uh, see pollution today, and by the way, I'm told that by the year 2080, there's not going to be enough air for everyone to breathe in this world. Did you know that? And I'm told by the year 2080 that there's not going to be but one square foot per person area for us to stand on by the year 2080 at the present population growth. 2080, we're going to have one square foot apiece. And I look at that monstrous looking house I've got right now. Think how many people are going to have living there. When I see these things coming, you know I can do one of two things. I can either sit here and get ulcers and chew my fingernails off to the, down to stubs and say, oh, what's going to happen? Or I can say, glory to God. All these things simply tell me that when these begin to show themselves, the Word says to rejoice and look up. Why? <laughs> look at it, Luke 21. Luke 21, 28. See what it says. When you begin to see wars and rumors of war, all these different things happening, give up. Luke 21, 28. Glory to God. And when these things, what? Begin to come to pass. Not when we get way into them, but when these things begin to come to pass, then give up. Oh, then look up for your redemption draweth nigh. What does that mean? It means one of these days we're going to hear the trumpet sound and in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be caught up out of this world and the great tribulation is going to come down on this earth. Seven years of tribulation called Jacob's time of trouble and the saints are going to be snatched away to go first of all to the judgment seat of Christ to receive our reward and then the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's an exhilarating. Boy, if that doesn't get you excited... You really need another dip. Glory to God. In the meantime, God says He'll keep His church and sustain us and that the gates of hell will not be able to withstand us. We'll be able to walk right in on Satan's ground and have victory. Second thing, it's an activating hope, I'll assure you. Let me ask you something. Now, you think about it. If you knew beyond all shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ were coming, was going to come tomorrow at noon, what would you do different than you're doing right now? If I could, all of a sudden, if an angel appeared on this platform and said, God told me to warn this body in Lake Mary that tomorrow at 12 noon, Jesus is coming for his body, what would you do differently? Some, some people say, I just throw up my hands and say, what am I going to do? I really believe that if you and I knew that Jesus were coming at noon tomorrow, that we'd begin to look around this body and say, Lord, I've got some confessions to make around here. I've got some things to make right with others here. I've got to make some long-distance calls. Lord, I've got unsaved loved ones. I've got family. I've got friends that are unsaved, and I haven't witnessed to them. Lord, give me time between now and noon tomorrow. Let me get to them, and in the middle of the night, you'd be calling them and saying, Will you please forgive me? I failed to tell you about Jesus. 
And He's coming. He's coming tomorrow. We know it. I really believe that if we knew that, that some of us that are still playing around with these little secret sins and habits would be on our face before God and asking Him to deliver us and set us free. We wouldn't play with Him anymore. We'd say, Lord, I don't want those things in my life. Those, those slang words and those, those little shady stories that sometimes come out of the mouths of those who profess to be Christians. The attitudes that we have maybe between husbands and wives in our home or wives to children, husbands and wives to their children and children of the parents. I think there'd be some confessions made, don't you? If you knew Jesus were coming tomorrow. See, the trouble is we don't really believe that He could come at any moment, do we? May I just share with you? Don't wait because He could come by tomorrow noon. He could come tonight. The Word of God says, For you know not the day nor the hour. It's an activating hope. If you really believe Jesus could come at any moment, you'd do differently. And you'd get your books in order very quickly. Because it's a purifying hope. Turn to John, the third chapter. John, the third chapter, verses 2 and 3. It's a purifying hope. John 3, <clears throat> verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when, ye sh when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath what? Say the words. How many of you got your Bibles here? We hold them up. Let's see your Bible. Huh? Okay, just, just checking with you. I'm sorry, John 3, verses 2 and 3. Is it 1 John? Oh, I apologize. I'm sorry. I do that every once in a while. My tongue gets over my eye teeth and I can't see what I'm saying. 1 John 3. I have it written in my notes. That's why I didn't turn to it. 1 John 3. Okay. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Yes, right. I knew I was wrong. All right. <laughs> Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this, what? What hope? The hope that He's coming, that's looking for His coming, expecting Him to come at any moment that knows that at any hour Jesus could break through the clouds and the church could be caught away. Now, that's who he's talking about. And every man that hath this hope in him, what's the end result of it? Purifieth himself. Now, what does that mean? It means that he does what Paul said in Corinthians, the 11th chapter, judge yourselves that you be not judged. You know, there are a lot of people that say, Lord, yes, I know that's in my life, and Lord, I'll tell you what, if the preacher preaches on that tonight, I'll get it straightened out. No, I've done that. I remember when I was a younger Christian, God was talking to me about some things, and I'd say, oh, I don't want to talk about that, Lord. Oh, yeah, I'll get that straightened out eventually, Lord. And I, so I'd just say, well, Lord, if the preacher preaches on that tonight, I'll get it straightened out. I imagine no one else has ever done that, have you? And when he'd, when he'd start preaching, the preacher would be preaching on something else, and he'd get off and almost get to it. I'd go, <gasps> I'd just almost expect him to talk about it, you know. And then when he wouldn't, I'd, <laughs> he didn't talk about it. Lord, I will get it straightened out, though, eventually. But he says if you really know he could come, 
and you really expect he could come and that gets down into your spirit. My Jesus could break through the clouds any moment. He says you will judge yourself and you'll purify yourself and you won't wait for the preacher to tell you to do it. And you won't wait for mom and dad to tell you to do it. You'll begin to say, Lord, if there's anything in my life that ought not to be there, I don't want it there when you come. Purifieth himself even as he is pure. Titus, the second chapter, and I'm going to turn with you to that. Titus, the second chapter. Titus, go to Hebrews and turn left, two books. Okay, Titus, the second chapter, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, what? Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Why? What's the motivation? Here it is. Looking for that blessed hope. What's that? His coming. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, again, I tell you that it's an exhilarating hope. It's an activating hope. It's a purifying hope. And it's a mysterious hope. Because down through the ages, many Christians have said, you know, I really feel Jesus is going to come before I die. And he hasn't. And some people say, oh, I've heard that ever since I was knee-high to a grasshopper that Jesus is going to come, and He hasn't come yet. Well, all I can say to them is, then that means we're that much closer to when He is coming. Because Jesus said in the last days, many would say, my Lord delayeth His coming. All things are like they've been ever since the world ever began, and no one has ever come back from the dead. No one has ever come like that before, and it's not going to happen. Jesus said that was prophetic. He said, that's what's going to happen in the last days. But you know, never before in the history of the world have we had that little branch shooting forth again, a bud, Israel, since 1948, has become a nation. Never in the history of the world before was Russia a world power, and it is now. And that was prophesied, Ezekiel 38 and 39, if you want to find out what God's going to do with Russia, that'll tell you exactly what He's going to do with them. And I could go on ad infinitum, wars and rumors of wars. That rumors of war means brush fires all over. We would call them guerrilla warfares, revolutions, floods. Do I need to say more? Tornadoes, earthquakes. The charts, I understand, in Washington have been going like this, are beginning to turn almost straight up with the increase of these things happening. And as I've told you, by 1982, Nine planets in our solar system are going to be put in perfect alignment on one side of the sun. Very seldom does that ever happen. And when only two or three have gotten on one side of the sun in alignment in the past, it's caused tremendous earthquakes and upheavals and volcano eruptions and mountains going up and are going down and islands coming up and vice versa. But in 1982, there are going to be all nine of them right in a straight row on one side of the sun, and all the ramifications of that would produce everything that Jesus said would happen during the tribulation period. And when I say that, I simply repeat, no man knoweth the day nor the hour. But he says, watch therefore, 
Be alert. Recognize that Jesus can come at any moment. And you know, I want our Christians, I want Christians to know this. So that you don't say, well, I better not do that because the church doesn't believe in it. Or I better not do that because mom and dad says it's wrong. But we'll say like Joseph said, I cannot do this before my God because he can come at any moment. Are we ready? Are our lamps trimmed and filled? Do we have the oil of the Holy Spirit within our lives? So that when he comes, our garments will be clean. We'll be ready for the bridegroom. And we won't hear him say... Depart because I never knew you. I really have to say that I believe that that group are the ortho, many of the orthodox groups that have all their orthodoxy absolutely straight, but has never transformed their lives and they've never yielded their lives to the lordship of the Holy Spirit. And that's the oil they need in their life because Jesus didn't say, no, you were too late with the oil. He said, no, I didn't. I've never known you. Read it. That's what he says there. I never knew you, Matthew 25. And I want you to know, if you've never been born again of the Spirit of God, you can have all your theology right, and you'll bust hell wide open. Because Jesus will have to say in you that, to you in that day, I never knew you. I'm so glad that when we've confessed Him as Lord and Master of our lives, and yielded our lives, hearts to Him, that when that day comes, we can say with excitement, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Are you excited about His coming? you know he could come at any moment? May I just share something with you then? If we really believe Jesus could come at any moment, why aren't we more concerned about lost people as a people? Why don't we lose sleep and why don't we weep over lost and dying people? It's something else to know that he's coming. And they say, glory to God, he's going to take me out of all this. You know, that can be a selfish desire too. Lord, get me out of this mess and all this stuff around me. Rather than say, Lord, let me snatch souls out of the fire. Let me see the storm clouds coming, but keep on with the harvest, because it's white unto harvest right now. If Jesus is really coming, then we ought to be asking the Lord to help us to harvest. Right? Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that you will put that expectancy and that longing and that exhilaration in our, in our hearts knowing that you could come at any moment. Cause us to just daily pray, Father, in Jesus' name, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Let me walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit being manifest. Let the power of God flow through my life and wash away those things that would stain my garments and make me to be less than you'd have me to be. In Jesus' name I pray that you'll cause our hearts to just constantly be open to what you would have for us. We love you tonight, and we thank you that Jesus is coming. And we thank you that in that day we're going to be able to stand before him knowing that we could not stand in our own righteousness but in his. But, Father, I pray that even as I talked about this morning, the talents that you've given us cause us to let them be multiplied. Let the Spirit of God cause us to be busy about our Lord's work so that when he comes you can say Lord we can say Lord you, you gave us five talents and we've multiplied them now we've got ten or you've given us two and now we've got four so that we'll really with great desire and anticipation hear you say well done my good and faithful servant 
I ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thank you for your goodness to us. Amen.